at the Mojo Radio Show. We scour the planet to find the biggest names in health, creativity, wellness, strategy, brand, performance, management, and more. Turn this up. This is going to be crazy. This is Jason Overcome Redman. Hey, I'm Dave Acosta. Hi, this is Cal Newport, author of Deep Work. G'day, this is Ryan Park. I'm Batman. This is Ivan Davies from my town. I'm Andrea Burke from the Canadian National Women's Rugby Team. And Lucas Fickendee. This is Tate Fletcher, Cage Fighter. This is the Mojo Radio Show, or I'll be coming to see you. Then we ask them the big questions. Oh, man, this is such a great question. You've actually landed right on the mark. That's a, another really good question. It's great talking to some clever dudes, frankly. I've gone probably a little bit more in-depth with you than, uh, than I have in the book. I've done, like, 500 interviews, but nobody asked me about this. <laughs> oh, wow. And sometimes we talk about darts. There we go. Can I tell you, Dina, Gary's favourite sport is darts. How athletic is that? I think it's uh, interesting that it's your favourite, but I won't be judgmental. (laughs) Look, it's the only sport that I know of where a prerequisite is a pint of beer and a cigarette. Come on, let's be honest. The Mojo Radio Show. We don't take ourselves too seriously. So you try throwing half a dozen darts in a row and just see how you go, Uh, my friend. But we hope you will. Welcome. I got my boat. To the Mojo Radio Show. Hey, everybody, and welcome to the Mojo Radio Show. Welcome aboard the Big Red Bus. If you're new to the show, the idea is we just find a wide variety of outstanding people, people with a point of view, and we cover lots of different topics, but they all have one thing in common. They have an opinion or they know something that we need to know to help get our mojo working in every aspect of our world. I've got to say the lineup just continues to be amazing. Confirmed is David Marquette. Now, he's a naval subcommander from the U.S. Navy who wrote the excellent book Turn the Ship Around, which has been recommended to us by a number of guests. Dr. Terry Walls, which is thanks to Smith A., our resident Mojo Radio Show doctor. Dr. Terry Walls is a doctor who turned around her own MS, multiple sclerosis. Now, she was confined to a wheelchair essentially couldn't walk, and now she's up and about and riding a push bike. An incredible story and helps people around the world solve chronic disease. So I'm looking forward to speaking with Dr. Walls. Adam Lowenstein, who was a writer in the White House, and he is just a great writer, is coming on the show as well as – do you remember Dan – we we talked to Dan Churchill one day? Of course. Absolutely. MasterChef finalist who's now killing it in the US as a chef in New York. Really smart young guy. He's coming on. So hopefully he's not killing him in the US with his cooking. Yeah, he's uh, he's a really cool guy. That will be a fascinating show. Anyway, loads ahead. Uh, but this week we're heading due north to the world of international poker and a little look at the curious world of Sherlock Holmes. So this show will be a cracker. Everybody is on board the bus. We're ready to roll. Robbo, is the bus in gear, so to speak? The bus is in fourth gear, top gear, and we are out of the blocks. Robbo's remarkable facts. Let's go. Well, as you mentioned, today's show does feature a professional poker player, so I figured it only appropriate that we find uh, some crazy poker trivia or facts. So let me start with a question. AP, Birdie, how many cards in a single deck of playing cards? Uh, Well, do you count the Joker? (laughs) <laughs> card? No, just in, in, a, in a deck of cards. So no jokers, we're playing poker. How many okay. cards in the no, deck? No, no, I've got it. There's Mickey, Minnie, <laughs> Donald, Goofy. Uh, tell me, Don, Donald's got some kids. Uh, 
Snow White, my favourite card, the Queen of Ace. Look at you, Queen you know this. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. Well, there's, there's 50 52. Something, yeah, 52. Yep. Okay, and so when you shuffle those 52 cards, do you have any idea how many different possibilities there are in terms of the order that those 52 cards end up in? I do. Uh, two. One, winner. Two, loser. <laughs> now, no, I don't. I read a book about Las Vegas and card counting there, which got made into a movie. But I can it's some, it's like a, it's a mi- millions. <laughs> Here we go. It's more than millions, trust me. To figure it out, you have to use a thing called 52 factorial, which basically means you multiply 52 by 51 by 50, then 48, 49, blah, 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 all the way down to one. The answer to that equation means there is, are you ready for this? <laughs> Have we got enough tape? <laughs> Eight sextillion, 658 quindecillion, 175 quadradecillion, 170 tredecillion, 943 duodecillion, 878 undecillion, 571 decillion, 660 nonillion, 636 octi- octillion, <laughs> 856 septillion, 403 sextillion, 766 quintillion, 975 quadrillion, 289 trillion, 505 billion, 440 million, 883,277 different possibilities in the way those cards can fall, which ironically is the same amount of champagne AP has had in his lifetime. And the same amount of ants that are on the planet, I think. Oh, it might be close, mightn't it? I think there's uh, the weight of ants is greater than human beings. Did you I've know that? read that somewhere. In fact, I think that may have well been a remarkable fact about a year ago, AP. You may have, you may have been paying attention lately. <laughs> <laughs> Who, me? You've got to be kidding. I wonder how people do that with card counting and stuff. There's isn't actually it crazy? such a skill in that, isn't it? Just And just quickly, for those who don't know maths, um, and I have to give a shout-out to a guy called AJ Edwards who's a, a – a member of our Facebook page because he gave me the way to read that. I had no idea what it meant. It's a 68-digit number. And it also means, and here's the the remarkable fact just to finish this off, it also means that every time you shuffle a, a deck of cards, it's most likely that the cards will never have landed that way before anywhere in the world. Wow. That's incredible. Isn't that? So every time you shuffle a deck of cards... They've probably never been shuffled that way before ever. Puts a whole new twist on Snap. Does, doesn't it? (laughs) Or Go Fish. (laughs) Exactly. The Mojo Radio Show. Before we crack into this, this is just something very – this is a a very quick aside, which I find just cool, not remarkable, but quite cool, is Jack Dorsey – whose name may or may not mean anything to you. He's the CEO and founder of Twitter and Square, and he's got a net worth of around $5 billion. So he's not one of the big guys in the world, but still $5 billion's a lot. And he recently announced he's going to give away more than a billion primarily to fight the coronavirus. Now, this is by far the biggest single-person donation to the cause yet. Now, what's interesting about this, he, you can see every donation he's making on a Google Doc. So it's not just, hey, I'm giving the money away, but then you never hear anymore. So if you want to see specifically where the money goes, he's created a Google Doc. I think Jack Dorsey is one of the most fascinating guys that I've heard interviewed because although he's rich beyond measure, 
he practices pretty much all the stuff we talk about on the show. He walks to work every morning, five miles every day in New York, regardless of the weather. And he listens to podcasts or he walks in silence thinking. He eats with friends once or twice a week for conviviality or community. And Johnny Bowden talked about that on the show. Jay Ferrugia talked about how community is one of the most important aspects of our life for longevity. He reads ferociously, books or podcasts. He's really health conscious, completely dialed into what his body and his mind needs. He has his own morning rituals. He has supplementation. For example, he actually dropped on one of the show's unsolicited Athletic Greens, who are a friend of ours who look after us in Patreon. It's just really impressive. It's not just, it shows it's not just a bank account, but how he approaches his whole life. When so many people with that much money are so messed up. <laughs> Typically, you look at the rich list, overweight, they're in rehab, third marriage, depression, breakdowns. And the example, there's a book I read last week on James Packer, who ticks a lot of those boxes. <laughs> Read the book. It's a fascinating story of one of Australia's richest men who cannot find fulfillment. And I, I really rate Jack Dorsey. And uh, man, I tell you what, he would be a get to get on the show. Yeah. I'm presuming you're working on that. Or is he ignoring your emails? I'm trying a few back doors. <laughs> he's, not, he's not accepting my call, but I'm trying a few back, do- back doors. Oh, well. What's that old I'm man trying on a TV? Few DMs. Yeah, what's that old ad on TV? Knock and ring and knock and ring and knock and ring and knock until you do. And DM and DM and DM. Mojo <laughs> Radio Show. We don't take ourselves too seriously. Oh, thank God. This week's guest is one I've been looking forward to for a number of years because that's how long I've been chasing Maria Konnikova for this show. Maria is an author and professional poker player and What's fascinating about Maria is she's a Russian-American writer and psychologist. She's got a BA in psychology and creative writing from Harvard and a PhD in psychology from Columbia University. Now, with Maria's writing, she, she authored two New York Times best-selling books. Uh, one was called The Confidence Game, which is about con men, and the other one was called Mastermind, How to Think Like Sherlock Holmes. And... What's really great about Maria is this curious nature of what she wants to find out, and she uses all the skills of psychology to then write about it. And Maria has a new book coming out just this week, hot off the press. It's called The Biggest Bluff. Now, the background for this book is that Maria wanted to know where was, where was the sweet spot between luck and skill? Where's that sweet spot? And poker was said to be the game that best exemplifies that sweet spot. So Maria decided to write a book about poker, got together, as you'll hear in the interview, with one of the world's greatest ever players as a coach. And what's curious about this, Maria has now gone on to become an international poker champion, has won international championships, has won over 300 grand the last year in tournament earnings. (laughs) Although has written this fantastic book, which I've read a couple of times, has inadvertently turned into a professional poker player. Great story. Amazing. We're so glad to have you here. Maria, welcome to the Mojo Radio Show. Thank you so much for having me. There is so much I want to talk to you about through the show. Just before we start, when somebody meets you today and asks you what you do, how do you like to reply? I say that I am a writer and a poker player. So I consider myself both. 
but always a writer first and foremost. Yeah, and I want to talk about that as we go through the show. I just quickly want to step back a set because I'm always curious about the impact parents have on the trajectory of our our children. I just want to step back for a moment to when you were four years old and your family migrated to the United States after the Soviet Union closed the borders. And affected by the propaganda in the Soviet Union, your parents decided for you to live without a television. And you then said your dad used to read you Arthur Conan Doyle's stories. When you think back, how big an influence did that have on you deciding to create a world around words and writing a book mastermind how to think like Sherlock Holmes? You know, it's it's always difficult to to tell what I was thinking in the moment, obviously, especially when I was four years old. But in retrospect, I mean, I can't help but believe that that had a huge effect on just my, my entire career trajectory, my interests, everything, because I vividly remember not having a TV. We actually did have a TV for about a month, something like that. And then my parents saw that we were just fascinated by it. We were captivated. You know, all, all of us kids would gather around and would watch it. And that was the end of that um, because they wanted my first instinct when I had nothing to do or when I was feeling bored or whatnot, not to be, oh, let me turn on the television, but rather let me open a book. Let me create these worlds in my head. And all of my happiest early memories are from reading. I mean, I remember my grandparents reading to me, and of course, my dad reading every single Sunday. It was a ritual that we had for many, many years, um, that every Sunday night we'd have a book read to us, or a part of a book, because we obviously couldn't read an entire book in a Sunday evening. But there were lots and lots of books. I mean, we read The Count of Monte Cristo and all of and The Three Musketeers, all of these, you know, rolling adventures. And Conan Doyle, the Adventures of Sherlock Holmes really did stick with me because it wasn't – it was this different world, but it was also – I think I was fascinated by the detective aspect of it, you know, solving things by the by the mind and actually, wow, there's a person who – you don't have to be good with a sword. You can just be good with your brain. And that really appealed to me because um, I completely lack all hand-eye coordination, so sword fighting was never in my future. <laughs> You know, there's gold out of the gate there. Imagine if we could have our children, their first instinct was to grab a book or their first instinct was to sit and think really hard about something or to be an investigator or to solve a problem. Because I suspect today a lot of mums and dads and or partners who have children, their first instinct is not to do that their first instinct is to grab something else. I, th- I think that's absolutely gold. What a, what a beautiful memory to have. And and if if we as guardians of the prince and princesses of possibility could embed some instinct that was around that Sherlock Holmes principle, yeah, it's beautiful, Marie. Well, thank you. I mean, thank my parents. I think there are certain things that one can take credit for and others that one can't. And I think that, you know, people, for instance, people are always – surprised that I'm still fluent in Russian and that I read in Russian and that I write in Russian. Um, It's hard for me to write in Russian, but I can if I have to. And I say, you know, that's not me at all. That's my parents. I 
They made sure I read Russian. They read to me in Russian. They spoke to me in Russian. And I can take no credit for that. And I think the love of books and the love of homes and of thinking and of kind of that approach to the world, that I think is a little bit more joint because my sister's a doctor. You know, not all of us became writers. Um, and she doesn't like writing and she doesn't read very much. But I think that it was still, you know, it, it was definitely from them. They gave me that possibility, that they gave me that option. And the funny thing, actually, I said my sister doesn't read very much. She used to not re read very much. You know, she's busy saving lives. She's an absolutely brilliant doctor. But um, now that she has kids, she actually reads to them a lot. And so I think she's reading now more than she ever did before. And I think, so that legacy continues. I inspired by the Sherlock Holmes, the way you frame Sherlock Holmes as an investigator, I went to audible.com.au here in Australia and downloaded Conan Doyle's library of Sherlock Holmes, read by Stephen Fry, which I found fascinating. Uh, it's 75 hours of listening. So. But, you know, if you're, if you're going to listen to anyone for 75 hours, don't you want to listen to Stephen Fry? I know, but how good's that? It's one credit. Like, it's just, there's something for nothing for anybody listening. <laughs> Let me tell you, that's gold. Uh <laughs> Now, you, you've now written this book about poker and your journey into poker, and you said you got into the game of poker initially to better understand the line between skill and chance. Now that you've done the book and you've had time to process it and you're playing at the highest level of poker, what have you come to understand about that line? That it's a very easy line to conflate if you're not incredibly vigilant and incredibly careful. I think that all of us have a natural instinct to think that there's more skill involved in almost anything than there is, and to take credit for things when things are going well. And what poker teaches you is that, yes, poker is ultimately a game of skill. And, you know, if you play for hundreds of hours, the most skilled player is going to win. But in any game, in any hand, in any one confrontation, luck plays just an absolutely outsized role. And so any person can get lucky in one game, in one tournament, in one moment, in one day. And so you could play against the best player in the world and you've never played before and you win. And when things are going well and when you're winning, it's so easy to say, I'm the best, I'm brilliant, I'm the best poker player in the world. And a lot of players make that mistake and then they get complacent and they don't take feedback, they don't analyze their game, they don't see the mistakes they're making. When things aren't going well, it's much easier to say, okay, what am I doing wrong? And so what I've learned is that yes, skill matters. And what you need to do though, is be able to make a kind of dividing line between what you do and what your decision process is, which is the skill part, and the outcome, which is the luck part. And the two aren't necessarily aligned. You could make the right decisions, you could do the best possible thing and lose because the cards went against you. And you can make the absolute wrong decision 
one that you should never have made and you're supposed to lose 90% of the time, but that 10% happens and you win. And it's very important to actually learn to separate that in your mind and then to take that mindset away from poker and to other areas of life so that you have, I think it, it gives you a much more Zen approach to everything because you, you realize, you know what, let me control what I can. Let me make the best decision I can with the information I have. And then the outcome is going to be what it's going to be. And that does not reflect on the quality of my decision. There's an idea in psychology you wrote about, introduced by Julian Rotter? Rotter? Yes, uh, Rotter. Rotter in 1966, and it was called The Locus of Control. Is that what you just talked about? And I'm also curious that this locus of control you talked about in terms of what happens in the external environment and what we control, we don't control. I suspect you sat in class and learned a lot about this. Did you then find sitting at the table, you kind of went, aha, that's what that's what this means. Okay, now I get it because I'm doing it firsthand. Uh, yes to the second part of the question and, and to the first. A lot of what I talked about was about, uh, about the locus of control. And the way that uh, Julian Roeder uh, will phrase this is, is it an internal or an external locus? So an internal locus of control means that you think that you're in control of events. So when something happens, you say, that's me. An external locus means that you think that the world kind of happens. So something happens and you say, oh, that's not me, that's the world. The funny thing is that a lot of people tend to have both. It just depends on the circumstances. So Oftentimes, a very common profile is when something good happens, I take credit for it, internal locus. Something bad happens, I deflect responsibility and say, oh, you know, um, it was this, it was this guy, he wasn't working hard enough, my group failed, not because I was a bad member, but because everyone else was horrible, I did a lot of work and I still failed. Um, so external locus. Of course, there are people who actually are the opposite, who when they do something well, they say, oh, no, no, I can't take the credit for this. It's all these other people. And they really believe it. And that can actually be detrimental because you really don't, um, you don't get the joy out of accomplishment. And quite the opposite, there are also people who have an external locus when things go, um, an internal locus when things go badly. So something bad happens and they say, yeah, it's my fault. I always mess up. Um, and that tends to lead to depression. So you have all these different profiles and it really depends on, you know, is the event good or bad? And am I taking responsibility or deflecting responsibility? And it gives you this sense of agency or lack thereof. And you're absolutely right that, you know, I studied this um, when I was at Columbia, when I was doing my graduate work, did a lot of work on self-control and locus of control um, and understood it well on a theoretical level. But poker, oh, oh boy, does it bring it home on a practical level? And you start just seeing it play out hand over hand, game over game. You just see people saying, you know, and how they talk about hands. Oh my God, can you believe what he did? Can you believe that card? Blah, 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 blah. It's called bad beat stories when people just tell you all the horrible things that have happened to them and all the bad beats they've taken. Well, that's an external locus of control. And that's something that my coach, Eric Seidel, basically made me allergic to. And he he would yell at me every time I started talking that way he would tell me i don't want you to do, i never want you to describe things as happening to you i want you to take agency i want you to take responsibility it was such an invaluable lesson and i thought oh wow you know i thought i was very good at that but poker teaches you that it's hard and that oftentimes mm. you think that you're taking responsibility but you're not on another practical level you said that 
poker showed your confidence issues. How how have you fixed them through poker? Have you fixed them? I mean, has has the the work you've done and are doing in poker, the writing, the thought you're putting into it, has that has that helped your confidence issues, or do you still suffer with them? Um, I think it's something that is a constant work in progress. I think I'm much better now than I was at the beginning of the journey because I've. First of all, I mean, it's it's a cliche that in order to solve a problem, you first need to identify it, but it's a cliche for a reason. It's true. And I didn't realize just what a problem this still was for me until I started playing poker. I didn't realize how often, you know, how socially ingrained a lot of stereotypes about the way women are supposed to behave um, actually were um, in me. I thought, you know, I'm a successful writer. You know, I have all these credentials. I sh- I'm good. You know, I'm confident. Turns out I'm not. I will defer to people all the time. When people bully me at the poker table, I fold. I say, oh, okay, you must have a really good hand. This was me at the beginning. I've, I've, I've worked through a lot of that um, in the last three years. But at the beginning, I just realized, oh my God, you know, I don't want conflict. I tend to avoid these types of confrontations. I tend to be more passive. Um, I tend to make bad decisions because I'm scared, um, because I think that I don't know what I'm doing and they do know what they're doing. And all of these vicious mental cycles that make you a much worse player in poker and in life. And it took poker to identify that within me and be able to start working on it. And yes, I do think that I've become a much stronger player and a much stronger person outside of poker. Um, but like I said, I think it's always a work in progress. Studying, you had a PhD in psychology and you studied decision-making, which is what we do every day. From a, I guess, a theoretical perspective, have your ideologies of psychology and or decision-making changed in the last 12 months, because it took you a while to finish the book. You've now done, you're now promoting this, and it's a fantastic book. How Have your ideologies of what you did in psychology and or decision-making changed now that you have played so much poker, been successful and done the book? Absolutely. I think I understand the, the real nature of uncertainty much better than I did before. Um, I think the poker has made me much more comfortable with uncertainty. And it's made me much more understanding of a lot of the test subjects um, that I would kind of laugh at the mistakes they made, obviously not to their face, but just as I was looking at the data and said, haha, I can't believe that someone so smart would make such bad decisions in this context. And poker makes you much more humble and you realize, oh, oops, when I'm in that kind of situation, I also make horrible decisions and it has nothing to do with um, how smart I am. It made me much more understanding of the pressures that hot decision-making can actually put on you in the moment, you know, just how important emotionality is, just how it can cloud your judgment, just how much time pressure matters, just how much, you know, all of these things can jumble your thoughts. Um, Because up, up until I started playing poker, I'd never really been in those kinds of contexts. You know, I've been a writer, I've worked in television, I was in academia, but I've never had to make really quick decisions under time pressure um, with a lot of uncertainty. That's just not what my job ever was. 
that's what I studied. That's what I had people do. But poker made me really viscerally understand what it felt like. And poker also offered a solution to a lot of these things because it taught me how to think through a lot of the problems that I'd identified um, while I was doing my grad work um, because it, it both illustrates the problems but also shows you what you can do to overcome them to become a better player. Because if you don't, if you don't actually solve them, if you don't address them, you're going to lose a lot of money and that hurts. <laughs> what I find interesting, Maria, is reading the book is it's actually – a book about your journey in poker, but if one stands away from it, there is a line between poker and our general world in business or life that I think it straddles really well. And you can take your mind into that to say, well, how would that work in a boardroom? How would that work in a coffee shop or whatever? And one of the things that I was really curious about was a, a thing or a process you call speech play or playing with words. And you said mm -hmm. there are certain people who would control a table through speech play. Can you describe what it is, how it works, and give an example of maybe when you did it or someone did it to you? Because I think that also works in a social environment or a business environment where someone can control through speech. How does it work in poker? Absolutely. So first of all, let me caveat this by saying I do not recommend speech play. I think most people cannot do it well, and you give away much more information than you elicit from others. Um, there are some players who are very, very good at it, but for the vast majority of us, just be quiet. <laughs> and I've learned the hard way <laughs> that when I'm in a hand, not only should I not ask questions, I shouldn't answer any questions because I will give something away. <laughs> so so let's, let's start with that caveat. Um, now, imagine someone who's good at speech play. Um, they might ask something like, Huh, you know, if you if you're in the middle of a hand and someone has has just bet, huh, you must be really strong here, aren't you? What what do you have? Do you have top pair? Do you have a set? They'll start almost fishing for information because they're looking at your reactions. Um and maybe you will answer them and you say, you know, sure, I have a set or no, I don't have a set. And that will give them some information or maybe just you'll physically respond or maybe you'll inadvertently do something um, and they just keep talking. They keep they keep bombarding you with that throughout the hand um, and they're looking for tells. They're looking for you to give them something about the cards that you're holding. Um, so people who do that well, it can be very, very powerful. So my suggestion is don't try to do it because a lot of times people don't realize, you know, they'll only start fishing for information if they're not very strong themselves, for instance. And so I can tell right away when they start asking me how strong my hand is or something like that. I know, oh, okay, you don't have a very good hand. Now I can bluff, right? So, so they've just told me much more because I know that they've only ever spoken when they're nervous or the opposite. I know that they only ever speak when they're really confident. And so it can be very dangerous. So my advice is just be quiet and don't respond. If someone tries to engage you during a hand, um, it's very different when you're not in a hand. I talk a lot. I'm quite animated um, when I'm just sitting at the table. But when I'm in a hand, I stop talking and I don't look at my opponent. I think that that's also very important. Pick a place and look at it. And I think in social interactions, if someone's fishing and you're trying to not give them the information they're fishing for, um, obviously you can't not look at them because 
that's quite rude, but you can switch the conversation to a different topic. Um, you can kind of be a little bit more protective that way. And I think in a social environment, um, you also have to be careful if you're engaging in, in speech play. Are you the one who's the strong one or are you going to be giving away something you're nervous about? You know, maybe you want some information about, you know, whether your promotion is going to go through. And so you find your boss at a party and you start being like, so, you know, have you talked to Joe lately? Um, something like that. And your boss will be like, oh, uh-huh, you're nervous about that, aren't you? <laughs> and so you've just given away a lot. So I think I think you just need to be careful. Um, but it can be powerful if used correctly and if used thinkingly. And if also if you realize that you can also give things away. Through looking at the work you've done, Maria, and you just mentioned the word inquiry, and through being a journalist, the work you've done on Sherlock Holmes and now the psychology working in the world of poker. It takes me to Eric Seidel, who coached you in poker, who's said to be one, I think one of the, I think you'd agree, one of the greats of all time in terms of money earning and also status in the world of, of the game of poker. And he had a phrase which you guys worked on, which was less certainty, more inquiry. That seems to really sum up your career. Was that one of the great strengths you think you brought with all the things you've done into the game of poker? I think so, yes. I mean, I think that quote from Eric is just the best thing in the world. And it's something that, you know, I, I want to, I don't have any tattoos. I don't actually want tattoos. But if I did, <laughs> it would be something I'd, I could see getting tattooed. <laughs> because it's just, it's so apt. It's short. It's it's pithy. And it just gets to the heart of what makes a good thinker, what makes an exceptional human being. It's someone who is always curious, who is always willing to change, who is always willing to take in information and make that information part of who they are. And someone who's never sure of anything because they realize that the world is constantly changing. And th I think that's one of the reasons that Eric is one of the best poker players in the world um, and the greatest of all time. And yes, I do think that it helped me that I came from a journalistic background. I mean, curiosity is what's driven me always. And I ask questions and I always try to surround myself with people who are much smarter than I am, who know much more than I do, um, because that's the way that you learn. That's the way that you grow. And so I think that that willingness to really soak in the wisdom of others, to really change and grow and inquire. Um, I think that that was one of my biggest strengths um, in learning to play quickly um, and improving as quickly as I did. I'm going to take an off-ramp here real quick into Sherlock Holmes Town. And what, with hearing you say that, Maria, it takes me back to something that you wrote about with Sherlock Holmes and the story that Sherlock Holmes tells Watson about seeing. Can you share how Sherlock Holmes saw it? It wasn't just what he saw, but also okay. how he processed so, it. Yeah, so this is um, actually the, what you're, the scene you're referring to is the reason I wrote Mastermind. And it's a scene where Sherlock Holmes asks Dr. Watson how many steps lead up to 221B Baker Street, and Watson doesn't know. And Holmes says, well, that's the difference 
between the two of us. Uh, you only see, I both see and observe. And just like less certainty, more inquiry is kind of the heart of Eric Seidel and what he taught me, I think to not only see, but both see and observe is the heart of Sherlock Holmes. It's the difference between mindlessness, just being passive, just going through the world, letting the world happen to you. A lot of the themes we've actually been talking about and mindfulness, actively observing the world, taking part in it, noticing it, making the conscious decision to interact and be present and in the moment and actually notice things as opposed to just have them surround you and have them pass you by. I think that's what makes Sherlock Holmes Sherlock Holmes because he not only sees things that no one else does in the detective sense, but he is also very observant of himself, of his emotions. That's how he's able to be a very rational and kind of cold-minded decision maker, not because he doesn't experience emotion, but because he's mindful. And so he understands the emotions he's experiencing, and then he's able to put them aside, whereas most people wouldn't even realize they're experiencing an emotion, and they would instead use it to color their decision. So I think that that observation is deep. It's not just about observing the world. It's about observing yourself. It's about observing your thought process and learning to be a little bit metacognitive about it so that you can see what's happening and kind of in real time see yourself thinking, so to speak, so that you can start learning to identify some of the weaknesses there and become a better thinker, a better detective, whether or not you're solving crimes or doing, doing whatever it is you do. How has it impacted you, Maria? I mean, I love the way you write your observations. How, how has that that statement seems to be at the core of a lot of your work? How have you embodied that for yourself? Because there's a difference between people who gain a lot of information and write a book about it versus those that gain it, write a book about it, but actually embodied it's part of their DNA. How have you taken that into your own day, week, month, year, life DNA? Well, I think the most obvious way is that when I started um, working on Mastermind, I became acquainted with mindfulness meditation. Um, Holmes meditates and mindfulness is kind of at the heart of that. And I still have a daily meditation practice. um, And it's really changed my life in a lot of ways. Um, Just having that space to reflect, to practice mindfulness, to learn to be observant of everything while you meditate, it really translates to everything else. I think it also made me aware, this is something funny um, that was happening as I was writing my first book. So I was working on Mastermind um, and I was writing about paying attention and how bad multitasking is and all of this. And I was researching kind of tools to manage it. And I found a computer program called Freedom, which shuts off your internet for Mm. certain periods of time. And I thought, oh, this is interesting. I want to write about it. So I'm going to, you know, buy it. It's $9.99 and try it out. I don't actually need it because I'm very good at focusing. And so I download this and I say, oh, you know, four hours, four hours of no internet. That seems great. Um, So I put it on. Within five seconds, I noticed that I'm in my Word document and I don't know quite what I'm going to write next. And my fingers, 
go to the, you know, command tab to go to my web browser because I was about to check my email. And I just started noticing how often I would do that. And it was just such a mind-blowing revelation. I said, wow, you know, I really don't focus. Um, I think I'm focused. I'm probably, you know, more focused than a lot of people, but I still whenever there's a lull, my first instinct is to, you know, go on email or check Twitter and see what's going on. And that really changed how I work. I started using this program that I didn't think I needed. And that kind of instinct became less and less prevalent. And then suddenly I found myself thinking better, writing better. Um, these days, I actually wrote a lot of The Biggest Bluff, my last book, by hand. Um, I have notebooks and notebooks filled with writing because... Not only was I traveling a lot, but it also helps me concentrate because I don't have the internet. I don't have social media. Just nothing is there. It's just me and the notebook. And I think I originally got that awareness and realized how important it was to kind of capture those pockets of quiet through Arthur Conan Doyle. Tell me about the intersection Sherlock Holmes, I both see and observe, and the book you talked about, statistics over observation, game theory over feel. And when I read that, I thought today, young marketers, business leaders, entrepreneurs aren't really observing. They're not really getting a feel for what's going on. They're not using mm -hmm. their intuition Tell me how, where is that intersection? How, how do you see it with the studies you've done? And then, of course, you're doing a lot of work with podcasts and media and so on, and people talk about their own experiences. Where's that sweet spot in all this? I think you, you need to appreciate and understand the importance and the power of both. Um, people who become very lopsided and very married to their approach I think are missing a lot. And it's actually much more, I mean, it's common on both sides, but right now in poker, you know, there's this, and I think it's not just poker. I saw it in psychology. We see it in literature. There's this just move toward quantification, that there's a way to do a statistical analysis of, of anything. There's a way to quantify it. There's a quote unquote, right answer. Um, and you see that, you know, in psychology, people are moving away from social psychology, which is what I studied. And, you know, neuroscience, because that's more quantifiable, you know, you can actually see it in the brain, look at that. Um, and they, when you go so unidirectional, you forget just how important all the soft skills are as well, and how much context they provide, and how how much you need them in order to interpret what the data are telling you, in order to apply the data correctly, in order to not make stupid mistakes, in order to know when something is applicable and when it isn't. And so I think that, you know, you really need to have both. Um, and different people will have different strengths, but it's very easy. And, and actually, you know, I don't want to, I don't want to, make it seem like it's just the quants who, who think that they have the answer to everything. I've met writers who say, oh, that's just all bullshit. That's horrible. I don't need any of that. You know, why in the world would we need 
any data, you know, everything is feel and everything is that. That's also wrong. That's just as wrongheaded. So I think you need to figure out where your strength lies and that's where you focus, but also try to balance and try to attain balance and try to be open-minded um, and realize that you actually oftentimes need everything. Um, you need the soft skills, you need the hard skills, um, you need a framework, you need the theory, which is kind of that soft less quantifiable thing, but then you actually need a rigorous framework as well. Um, so for, for instance, with poker, I am not a statistician. I'm not a math whiz. The last time I took a math course was in high school. Um, I'm, that's not my strong suit. That said, you know, I know how to count. I can add, I can subtract, I can multiply, I can divide. That's basically what you need. And I found myself buying computer programs to run simulations and to actually kind of do that analysis to to figure it out. Um, and that was incredibly helpful. But that's not my strong suit. I should I focused on the human element, the psychology, because that's what I'm good at. Um, and that's where my strength lies. That's where my, in poker terms, edge is coming from. Um, but I have to understand everything else. I have to understand the other part. And I also have to understand what I don't know, that I'm not going to be able to compete with the data whizzes um, on certain elements of execution. And that's fine. At least I understand what they're doing. And I can instead use the things that I'm good at. It's interesting because you also had to learn that it's the stuff you're good at. And it's the stuff that you win at. But also the lessons can come when you lose. Another player who become, I guess, kind of a mentor or coach was Dan, who you admired and did, had some really profound conversations with you. And one thing that Dan said to you, and it's in the book, is you become a big winner when you lose. Everyone plays well when they're winning. But the bit that I thought was really inter interesting, he said, but can you control yourself and play well when you're losing? And not by being conservative, but trying to still be objective as to what your chances are in the hand. If you can do that, then you've conquered the game. Have you conquered the game? Where, where do you sit in that situation <laughs> now of being able to win even when you lose? I think that even Dan Harrington, who is much older than I am and much more successful than I'll ever be. I mean, he's won the main event of the World Series of Poker. He's one of the most successful poker players of all time um, and also an incredibly successful investor. Um, he's retired from poker now and has an investment business. But he um, he's a brilliant, brilliant man. And it's a brilliant insight. And he says right after the quote that you read – that even he still finds it difficult. So I think that that's something that you always are striving to master. And yeah, I've lost. So I had, you know, I was able to go as deeply as I went into the game because I learned quickly. And then in my first year, I got very lucky. I won a major international title, which came with a lot of money. Um, then in quick succession, I had a number of other final tables, second places. So I was able to actually make a very decent income from poker, which enabled me to then, you know, play and experiment and travel and do all of this. Last year, I lost money. Um, and it, that was actually his, you know, are you, are you still able to play well when you're losing? And I think I've learned a lot um, I tried to analyze my game. I tried to take a step back. I tried to use math to figure out, 
you know, how am I running? And that means, you know, am I winning when I should and losing when I should, or am I losing when I should be winning, which means you're running below expectation. So I was able to do those analyses and kind of have the tools at my disposal to try to make what could be very emotional into something more logical. Um, I moved down in stakes because I think that's another very, very correct response. You need to play within your bankroll. And if you're losing a lot, your bankroll changes. So I think I have a lot of those tools um, that I've learned from people like Eric and people like Dan that I'm using, but it's hard. I mean, it's never easy to play well when you're losing. It's never easy to say, you know what, I've just lost a lot of money, but I'm going to take this risk anyway, because I know it's the right risk to take. Instead, it's very, it's much easier to say, you know what, I've just lost a lot. Let me just not take this risk because I don't want to lose even more. Um, so I think that it's it's important. This goes back to you know separating the outcome from the decision quality. It's very important, especially when you're losing, to focus on the quality of the decision and to still make the best decision possible given the information, um, even if the outcome might not go your way. You can't be afraid of the outcome. But then it goes back, let's go back to the book that you talk about hey, I'm on a bad streak, I'm due for a win. But the comment you made in the book is that probability doesn't have a memory. <laughs> Just yep, take, take us exactly. through the gambler's fallacy. <laughs> so people, people think that when they're on a cold streak, it's going to end and they're due for a win. And when they're winning, it's never going to end. They're going to just keep winning and winning. So those are kind of the two sides of the same coin, the hot hand fallacy and the gambler's fallacy. Um, the gambler's fallacy is the one that says, you know, if I'm losing, I'm due. Um, the hot hand fallacy says if I'm winning, I'm going to keep winning. And obviously probability doesn't care either way. Um, probability has no memory. It doesn't care about you. It doesn't care about individual outcomes. And even though if I'm in a card game and you know, I keep losing and losing and losing to all of these big hands and it's a private game, I'm probably going to start wondering whether the game is crooked or not. Um, if, if everything is on the level, if no one is cheating, then you can rest assured that the next outcome has nothing to do with what happened before. And so if I'm losing, um, I can keep losing. You know, I might lose for weeks. I might lose for months. I know very good players who went on losing streaks for years. Um, Eric, my coach, who's won tens of millions of dollars, has had years where he's lost millions uh, because things just didn't go his way. And that doesn't mean he suddenly became a bad player. He just was on a losing streak. And you never know when that streak is going to end. That's kind of the important thing to remember. It might end tomorrow and it might end a year from now and it might end two years from now. And that's just variance. That's just the distribution of noise. And you have no idea how it's going to play out. What you can be sure of is over the long term, if you live, if you survive to see the long term, your skill will triumph. But you know what? If you lose long enough and if your variance is bad long enough, then you might go broke. In writing the confidence game, and we just take an off-ramp here and go into the world of the con man, being a journalist investigating the con man, can you recall a con artist that you studied and wrote about that you actually quite admired 
for their craft, that within that craft there's something we could take away for good? I think that we can take something for, for good from a lot of con artists. And what I mean by that is the tools of the con artist's trade, they are outside of morality. They don't have a moral compass of their own. They just exist, and they can be used for good or for e- or for evil. And a lot of those tools are tools of persuasion, um, are you know tools of empathy, are tools of understanding and reading other people. Things that could actually be incredibly good um, with good intent. It's just that con artists use them with bad intent. So uh, as for someone you know who I I ended up admiring admire. Uh, Someone I ended up begrudgingly admiring is a con artist who I never met because he died long before I was born. His name was Victor Lustig, or as he was known, Count Lustig. And Lustig was known for selling the Eiffel Tower to a group of investors, not once, but twice, <laughs> wow. for, for scrap metal. Yep. Um, he also sold money boxes, so a box that prints money. And my favorite thing is that when he was in jail um, at a small town being jailed because the money box was a scam, he managed to convince the town sheriff to buy a money box from him while he was in prison, oh, that it he managed to convince him that he wasn't actually a scam. So this guy was good. This guy conned Al Capone, um, just this very brilliant con artist. And the reason I admire him isn't just because of all of these exploits, but because he had something that he called the Ten Commandments of the con artist. And one of them really struck me as something that we can all take and learn from and that would actually make us better people. And that commandment is a con artist isn't a good talker. A con artist is a good listener. And if you think about it, so much of what con artists are able to accomplish is because they truly listen they hear what you're saying, and then they give you the version of the world that you believe in. They kind of mirror yourself back at you. They see how you see yourself, and that's the version of you that they present to you. So you're like, yeah, this is an awesome person. They understand me perfectly. Well, that's because they're listening, and they're picking up on all these cues that most people miss, because most of us are really, really bad at listening. We are already thinking of our next question, or the thing we want to say next, or what we're going to have for dinner. You know, our mind is in 50 million places. So this, by the way, goes back to our themes of paying attention and being mindful, being present. It's all about part of it is listening well and listening when people are talking to you. And con artists are exceptional listeners. The best con artists like Lustig are good listeners, not good talkers. And I think that that's something that we can all take from them to build better relationships and have more meaningful interactions, deeper friendships, deeper connections. You know, it's interesting hearing you say that, Maria. I wonder about that and how we con ourselves. With writing the book, the work you did in talking to con artists and as a journalist, did it ever sort of come up in your own mind for you personally or when you're doing it that we actually run a giant con on ourselves where we don't listen to ourselves, we don't have true self-awareness, we're not truthful to ourselves? Did that ever 
wrap into your thinking or your writing? Oh, absolutely. We are the con artists that we need to be most afraid of. We con ourselves all the time. There is a psychological bias that I write about in the confidence game um, that's called the positivity bias or the better than average effect. There are lots of different names for it, the Lake Wobegon effect. And it's a bias that basically says that we see the world in a much rosier glow than it actually is. So we see ourselves in a much more positive light than others see us. We see ourselves as higher on good traits and lower on negative traits. We see the world as hopeful. So we, we think that tomorrow is going to be better than today because, you know, otherwise what's the point? And we, you know, we don't see reality as it is. Instead, we have this constant bias about ourselves and about events. And it's actually, it's very adaptive. So the only, when you look at the psychology of this, the only people who don't exhibit the positivity bias are clinically depressed. So the clinically depressed will rank themselves accurately on all the scales. They see themselves as they are, warts and all, and they're clinically depressed. So that's not a good thing. So I'll take, you know, I'll take a slightly rosy glow um, over that, over accuracy. But that means that we're constantly conning ourselves and we constantly recreate the world to match our vision of it rather than say, oops, you know, I guess my vision must be wrong. And so I think we need to be incredibly careful of that. And we do need to be very aware of ourselves and of how we distort things that happen because we distort data that way. Um, So when we're looking for new information, we often exhibit something called the confirmation bias, which is we pay more attention to the information that already confirms our point of view, and we dismiss information that doesn't. We see, read studies, we read news articles, we read, we just read everything in a different light if we agree with it than if we disagree with it. And that's really bad. That's, you know, the reason why we have such warped politics oftentimes. That's the reason why data and arguments will often not convince someone to change their mind. And you think, oh, my God, how could you not see this? Look at it. Well, it's because you're actually engaging in motivated reasoning rather than seeing the world as it is. So we con ourselves all the time. And I do think that the best thinkers and the people who are most self-aware are people who are able to see through that sometimes and who are aware of it and who are grappling with it and who try to fight it, even though you can't dismiss it 100%. I mean, we're, we're only human. We can be better and we can try to correct our views a little bit better, um, but it's hard and it, and it takes constant vigilance and it takes constant mindfulness. How does intuition fit into this Maria, because it's something you talk about in the book in the world of poker. And I suspect that a few people, when they talk about conning themselves, a lot of that comes from you probably have a voice which is giving you a perspective and you choose to ignore it or that intuition is not. How how do you see intuition? How do you explain intuition? Yeah. What have you learned about it, particularly from sitting at the table? So I think intuition is a very, very dangerous thing. What we know from psychology is that people have very strong intuitions, and those intuitions are both right and wrong. Um, Sometimes we have a very strong correct intuition. Sometimes we have a very strong intuition that's just completely wrong. The problem is we have 
no clue which is which. When you ask people and you have them try to figure out which is which and tell the difference, they can't. It's a coin toss. So we believe just as strongly in our right and our wrong intuitions, which is bad news. So what I think we need to do is I think the tool for when you trust your intuition, when you trust your gut, so to speak, is do I have expertise in this area? Because what correct intuition actually is, is deep, deep knowledge, which your mind doesn't necessarily have conscious access to. So you have an intuition because you've spent thousands and thousands of hours studying this, working on this, seeing all these situations. If you're at the poker table, you've been in this situation countless times and every single time your mind has processed something. And so even though you might not know where your intuition is coming from, it's actually coming from very careful observation over time and you're reacting to something specific. Whereas if you don't have expertise, you know, if you're a novice at the poker table and you've never sat down, if you're a novice in whatever it is you're doing and you have an intuition, don't trust it. Discard it. It's probably wrong because there's no basis for it to be right. The only intuition that you should trust is intuition that's come that comes of deep experience, which is just expertise, not intuition, but you just don't necessarily have the conscious access to what that expertise entails. Um, and maybe if someone asked you to explain, you'd finally figure it out, but you've never really voiced it to yourself. So I think it's very, very important to not be one of those people who's like, oh, you know, intuition, I, I'm, I feel it, I'm feeling it. Um, I tend to distrust intuition more than I trust it because, quite frankly, um, I'm not an expert on most things. It's funny hearing you say that, Maria. I heard someone talk, I think it was a psychologist, talk about the fact that wisdom was replaced by knowledge and knowledge is being replaced by consumption. And we are consuming a lot of stuff, but we never curate it, test it, try it, fail, succeed over and over, in which case that becomes knowledge. When we do that over a period of time and through the passage of time, it becomes wisdom. And I'd be curious to hear your thoughts. There seems to be some correlation there between that journey from consumption and knowledge to wisdom to where intuition is able to fit in or become valuable. Do you think there's something in that? Sure, sure. Um, I do. Um, I think it depends on what area we're talking about because, you know, it you can be wise in, in certain ways, but that doesn't mean you should suddenly start trusting your intuition. So there are people who I consider very wise, um, who I would trust in general life philosophy or, you know, teaching me about how to approach a topic, but whose intuition in one specific situation I might not trust because that's not something they're knowledgeable about. You can be wise and still lacking in knowledge in a lot of areas. And if we go back to Socrates, right, true wisdom is knowing what you don't know and knowing that you're not wise at all. And I think that the person who's truly wise is probably going to be the most skeptical of their intuition. There is so much more that I'd like to speak to you on your work, Maria. I find it Absolutely fascinating. And one thing that I heard you mention, uh, which kind of piqued uh, the Sherlock Holmes has piqued my interest, which is why I have got Stephen Fry's narrated books, and I've actually downloaded another book to read on Sherlock Holmes. You've really 
piqued my inquiry on that guy. But what was interesting that I tie back to today's situation with the pandemic, us being in lockdown, was how the Sherlock Holmes character and or books came to be in a doctor's surgery. Can you tell that story? Because it just seems that there's a correlation <laughs> between that and today's world where we have this time on our hands. Yeah. So a, a lot of people who aren't as familiar with Arthur Conan Doyle don't realize that he was a doctor. He went to medical school um, in Scotland and he opened up an ophthalmology practice and he wasn't very good. Um, he didn't have very many patients. It was a small town, but apparently, you know, he just, he couldn't acquire the expertise. Um, and so he just sat alone a lot of times and no one came for consultations. And so instead of twiddling his thumbs, he said, oh, why don't I start, you know, fooling around and writing a story? And so Sherlock Holmes was born out of a failed doctor's practice because there were no patients. And so instead, there became a book. What's interesting is it's a bit of a correlation to our show here, Robbo, is that he was a failed doctor. We're failed podcasters. We've been doing it for seven seasons. No one came to listen. So what's exciting about it is there is something on the other side of this we haven't found yet. We just haven't found that thing. There's, there's got to be something outside the surgery for us. There's a technical name for that. It's called the light at the end of the tunnel. <laughs> yes, that is that is the correct term. <laughs> That's the correct term. Um, Maria, one final question for you that comes if I if I combine all of your work together with your study in psychology. Being at the poker table now and being successful, having been through a lot to get to where you are, what's the greatest thing you had to unlearn that you have come to unlearn via poker? I think it goes back to something that you and I talked about at the beginning of this interview, and that's unlearning a lot of my socialization. I don't think... I mean, maybe others realize, but I certainly didn't realize the extent to which I'd been socialized in the norms of female behavior. You know, I should try to be nice so that people will like me. I should try not to be confrontational so that people will like me. Um, it's just all of these things that I've learned just through osmosis, through society, even though I've studied this and I've studied how it works, and I've studied gender biases, and I've written about it. Um, I've had to unlearn a lot of that socialization to say, you know what, it's okay to be confident sometimes. You know what, it's okay to speak back. It's okay to have confrontations. It's okay to speak up. Um, and I didn't know that I needed to unlearn it, and I think that sometimes those are the most important things to unlearn, are the things you're not even aware that you do. That you do. I could honestly talk to you for hours, Maria, maybe one, one, we'll get a chance sometime in the future to sit down for a cup of coffee uh, <laughs> in a coffee shop in New York and just go through this. I've got so much more I want to talk to you about. Uh, we spoke for quite a while in setting this up via the Twitter sphere, and the book <laughs> was in the process. It, it took a while for you to finish. You, you've got the book done. 
people will want to get on to the Maria train. What's the best place for people to hook up with you and learn all about the biggest bluff? You can go to my website, which is just mariaconacova.com, and that has links to pre-ordering the book or ordering the book, um, as the case may be. And the Penguin Press website also has um, links to it, as does HarperCollins, which is publishing the book in the UK. Um, So... Basically, anywhere books are sold, you can search for The Biggest Bluff. Um, I personally would recommend that you order the book from a local independent bookstore because they really need our support right now. Hey, listen, Gary, before we wrap the interview up, um, we should give credit to AP, our our booth announcer, who has turned (laughs) up today (laughs) wearing a green see-through visor and smoking a cigar playing Kenny Kenny Rogers, the gambler. He did just... He did just slip a note under the booth door, though, Maria, and he was wondering if you could please answer the question, when should he hold them and when should he fold them? If there's any doubt, fold them. That sounds like a damn good idea. Thank you for that tip. But what are you folding? Uh, that's another question. The washing. <laughs> yes, that's right. <laughs> there you go, most, people, most people hold them way too much. There you go. If we didn't play Kenny Rogers, the gambler, as a theme song for Marie Konnikova. If there was a song that was your theme song, what song would we play here in the Mojo Radio Show for Marie? Can I just say I'm not sure we would play Kenny Rogers the Gambler anyway? <laughs> we but- have. We have. We, we, did a, we did a Gone But Not Forgotten on Kenny not long ago. He's a legend. I've seen uh, him live. Right. He's a legend. What, what, what would we play for you, Marie? Oh, well, I, I think it would depend on whether we're staying uh- – staying uh, thematic or just favorite song. But let's stay thematic. Um, if we're going to stay thematic to poker, let's do Wilco's Casino Queen. Uh, and, <laughs> all right, and, and, and the other way around, favorite song, what would that be? <laughs> um, I have many, many favorite songs. One of the things that You're like me. I love the most is music. But something that I will – you know, as I, I like to endorse female artists and the soundtrack that got me through a lot of um, a lot of poker nights is the Miseducation of Lauren Hill. So I, I would recommend that CD, that album. Period. I think that it's wonderful for any poker player and talk about female empowerment. Lauren Hill just knocks mm-hmm. it out of the park. Very nice. So there you go. Very nice. The book is. Terrific. I thoroughly enjoyed it. Maria, I love talking to you today and hope we can keep in touch. Good luck with the launch. I know it's going to be fantastic. You're going to be using that Yeti mic of yours a lot because you are going to be (laughs) uh, in great request. So thank you for taking the time out. I know it took us a while to set this whole thing up. It's just been brilliant and um, best of luck with everything. Thank you. Perfect. Thank you all so much. It's been a pleasure. The Mojo Radio Show. What did you get out of it? I got a massive headache. Okay, let's just calm down. What's the so what? So Robbo has produced a new intro. Nice work. And the reason being is if we take a leaf out of our listeners' books, we've had a lot of requests over the years for people to say they really like it when we debrief the show and we look at our takeouts. And... I had a number of people say, why don't you do what Christian Bukusis, the F-18 fighter pilot, would do and do an after-action review. So we're going to start doing a segment we, 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 like, we like to call So, so what? what? So considering Maria's written a book, 
called the biggest bluff, do you reckon you'd look at her twice before calling her bluff if you were playing poker? Well, you would. And if you go onto Google Images and look at Maria, who's, who's a lovely-looking lady, you could hear her face in the game and you'd suddenly start to think, well, what are you thinking? What's really going on? But what I love about Maria, and it may or may not be evident, but when you read her three books to get to the biggest bluff, it, it all the books feed into each other. Like being a con man means you're running a con, which means you are you're getting people to believe something which is not true and getting the buy into the point where they'll invest. Sherlock Holmes, which is all about deduction and looking beyond the obvious and curiosity, and then poker, being an international poker player, is a thread through all of it. And just one thing as an aside, and we did mention this to our Patreon supporters in our backstage pass last month, is that one suggestion for you, folks, is I went and started listening and reading books on Sherlock Holmes, and I'm absolutely loving what I'm learning from Sherlock Holmes and Watson. Audible have a 17-hour book on Sherlock Holmes. In fact, it's a number of books, and it's read by the amazing Stephen Fry. And the whole thing is all based on inquiry and the psychology. It's it's one credit. So if you're interested in this topic and want to investigate it some more, as a takeout, here's a question for you, big fella. Mm -hmm. How many steps to Baker Street? (laughs) Seven? Now, there's a learning in this because Sherlock Holmes, in the first book, when he first meets Watson, says to Watson, how many steps are there to to 221B Baker Street? Watson, like you, didn't know. And he said, that's the difference between you and I, Watson. You see, I see and observe. And that line really got me intrigued in Sherlock Holmes. And there is gold aplenty in the writing of that character. But the takeout for me is also is how we listen to so many podcasts, watch so many videos, we listen to watch books, we listen to books. But unless you curate the learnings, which is something Cameron Schwab said to us on the show a number of episodes ago. And it's a classic example, there's 17 steps, and you can find it online anywhere. Close. 17 steps to 221B Baker Street. So I think the other piece of gold out of Maria is that not just see, but see and observe. And then as Schwabby would say to us, curate your learnings, take the gold, store it, use it, embed it. So it's a learning. And I don't know if you picked up on this, but the other thing I I thought was fascinating talking on Sherlock Holmes is where she led. And because of moving from the Soviet Union into the States and the propaganda, they didn't have a TV. So instead, he read to her about Sherlock Holmes. And the environment that she grew up in was created by her parents. And if you think of the environment today that we are creating and how we provide distractions to our children, and then we wonder why we have a lack of focus, a lack of discipline, a lack of attention, it's really interesting when you go back through these things, the environment that was created, the standards that parents held that are sucked up by the kids around them. I thought that was great. And then that led me to one of my favorite sayings out of this show is that her coach, Eric Seidel, said to her, less certainty, more inquiry. Imagine, imagine if a leader or as a friend or as a footy coach, whoever, imagine if you had a bit more beginner's mind where you are less certain about stuff, less opinionated, 
and you had more inquiry, more curiosity, more questions. You took ownership of mistakes and asked questions to improve. Man, it would be a different. It would be a different world in God in politics, in in social, in the environment. I, I, I honestly, I thought that was a cracking show. There was so much to take from it. It was good, wasn't it? There was. There's one thing that I mean. I enjoyed the whole show, but there was one thing right at the end that didn't slip into the interview. Um, but uh, our Patreon listeners will have heard it on the um, on the backstage pass. But the, she talked about, and I found this fascinating, that pandemologists, I'm, I think I've got that right, so guys who look into pandemics, use poker as their sort of test tube when it comes to transmission of viruses and things like that because they're all touching the cards and the chips yeah, and right. all that sort of stuff, and it's like a fantastic Petri dish for them to, to sort of look and watch. And I, I thought... You know, stuff like that you just don't know and you just no. go, wow, that makes complete sense mm. though, doesn't it? Yeah, it does. I, th- I think she was gold. The book is great. The book is not just a poker, although it talks about poker, obviously, in games and it talks about game face and it talks about the bluffing and her story and her being intrigued by it and the lessons from the great she hung out with. It's, um, it's a really good read. The, 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 the Mojo. Mojo Radio Show. This is going to be a different close for us. I'm going to try and thread a whole bunch of stuff together here. This is how my strange mind works. It's a pop quiz <laughs> that leads into the closing song. Here we go. Who is the biggest selling artist of all time, band or solo? Uh, biggest selling artist of all time. Uh, biggest selling album is Michael Jackson. Biggest selling artist, though. Uh, I would hazard a guess at maybe the Beatles. Correct. So, as of 2020, the Beatles are the biggest selling, let's call it artist, but they're a band. Who's the biggest selling solo artist of all time? Ooh, okay, I'd probably go Michael Jackson. <laughs> oh, okay. Educate me. This is, this is, I'm going to play you a clip. I'm going to get Lola to play us a clip in a second from Netflix. But this got me, and I actually had to go to Dr. Google to check this out. In fact, and I'll give you, see if you can pick up on this. This is a guy, is the only artist in music history to have released eight albums that all achieved diamond status in the United States, surpassing the Beatles, who only had six. He's won a stack of awards. He's won two Grammys, 17 American Music Awards, including the Artist of the 90s. And he's won an award for the best-selling solo album artist of the century in the US. He is one of the world's best-selling artists of all time, having sold more than 170 million records. That shows my age, records. Yes. Uh, Any idea? (laughs) Uh I know what I want to say, but I don't know that it's right. Go? No, it doesn't make sense. No, when I think about it, no. I was going to say Kenny Rogers, but no, I don't think it would fit. I'm just trying to add those numbers up in my head. Okay. Well, this is, this is not set up, folks. This is genuinely not set up. Now, here's where I tied the whole thing together. On a warm summer's eve on a train bound for nowhere, <laughs> I met up with the gambler. We were both too tired to sleep. So we took turns a-staring. Out Out the the window, window, at the darkness, the the boredom overtook us, and he began to speak. He said, Son, I've made a life out of reading people's faces. 
knowing what the cards were by the way they held their eyes. So if you don't mind me saying, I can see you're out of aces. For a taste of your whiskey, I'll give you some advice. Which is? (laughs) The gambler. Correct. So Kenny Rogers is not the right answer. (laughs) (laughs) But this is where it's really interesting. You should even bring up Kenny Rogers because the answer is Garth Brooks. Oh, wow. Okay. Wow. Now, Garth Brooks has a special on Netflix, and this is this is a segment of Garth Brooks. The, 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 it's a two-part series. It's fantastic. It'll Honestly, the gold in that show is fantastic. I'm going to get Lola to play a clip from that show. Then I want to talk about my experience and tie it back to The Gambler and Maria Konnikova. My father took me with him to the office on one of the weekends, and his boss was there. And he introduced me, I shook his hand. On the way home, Dad said, how'd you shake his hand? And that was the day I got to talk about sincerity, intensity, Mm. focus. The way you shake a man's hand determines at that spot how interested you really are to be there. It was big for me. Not a death grip handshake, a sincere handshake. Then you know if all hell breaks loose in the next five seconds from that handshake and you turn and you have to face something coming, you've got a partner, female or male. you got someone you can count on. And people might go, oh, that's, you don't know that from a handshake. Amen. That's you. Me, I'll bet my life on it. So that's Garth Brooks. The special is on Netflix right now. You know how much he's achieved. It's a fantastic show. Now, here's, here's where this all comes together with Marie Konnikova, Kenny Rogers, and Garth. Mid-90s, I was in a hotel room in Adelaide. I got a phone call from a record company saying, you're in town, what are you doing tonight? I said, I got nothing planned. They said, do you want to come and see Garth Brooks? And I'd kind of, I'd kind of had a vague interest in, in country and I went, sure. So I go down, meet the record company, they take me backstage. I'm in a room with maybe 10 or 12 people in walks Garth Brooks. He walked up to every single one of us, looked us in the eye, shook hands and held on just a little bit too, just a little bit longer than normal because he's kinesthetic. <laughs> Held on, looked me in the eye and said, hi, I'm Garth. What's your name? Where do, you, where do you work? What do you do there? How are things going for you? Walked on the next person. Hi, I'm Garth. What's your name? Hi, I'm Robbo. Work at Triple M, blah, blah. And he went around the room, did all 10. Then he stood around. Everybody mingled. Then when he left the room, he walked up to every single person, grabbed their hand, looked them in the eye and repeated back what he'd heard when he walked in the room. Hmm. And that segment, the reason I love that segment is because, it, number one, it's a lesson he got from his dad, which goes back to Maria Konnikova. But number two is that whole thing about seeing and observing. And, and when he talked about that segment, I went, you know what? He did that to me. That was in the, that was the mid-90s, and here he is now in 2020 telling that story on Netflix. It's so legit. And when he's on stage, as you'll hear during the special, he makes every single person's – he played in front of a million 
people in wow. Central Park. He had a crowd. Think about the biggest crowd you've been to ever. Let's go to the MCG, 85, 90,000. Now, times out by 10. It's just extraordinary, yet every single person would have felt as though he was thinking to them. He is, and where it goes back to Kenny Rogers is knowing what the cards were by the way they held their eyes. And that's the thing with this. And you said, you know, reading The Biggest Bluff with Marie Konnikova is looking them in the eye. Michelle Obama has a special on Netflix right now called Becoming, Become, Becoming. There's a segment in there where she said, and she's signing thousands of books on a book tour. And she said, every single person who walks up to my table, I look them in the eye. I don't look around. I don't look beyond them. I look directly in their eyes because I want to hear their story because hearing their stories helps me understand what's going on. It is amazing the similarities between these two, between Garth Brooks, and he doesn't have to, man. He's, he's up there, but he loves people. He's grateful for his job, loves his family. It's just a good special, and I just thought it tied it really nicely into some of the things we talk about here in the show particularly, but the way you shake a man's hand. And he's not just talking about it as like it's random content. He actually did it back in the mid-90s and I was there to witness wow. it. There you go. There's some out there who, did, who deserve their place, aren't there? Think of all the artists we've met. Stones, U2, Slash, just name them all. John Bon Jovi. Tell me one guy that did that to you. John Mellencamp. Oh, he didn't do that precisely, but John Mellencamp, went round the room and shook everybody's hand and introduced Would he have, himself. But they all do that. Uh, Mick Jagger did that, but he, there's no way that within three seconds he had any clue who we were. Yeah. No, Billy Connolly was uh, – Billy Connolly rings with me because Billy Connolly actually sat with me and just chatted for like 15, 20 yeah, minutes. Yeah, i that. Yeah, Billy Connolly. Quite incredible. That. So, um, so, yeah, yeah. He's, probably, he's probably the one that I would put up there on that level. Absolutely. But – um. Just quickly, before we get to the playout song, you mentioning Netflix, can I get a little selfless plug in here for something that's a bit close to my heart? Go. Uh, Netflix uh, have flicked $1 million to a very important cause here in Australia. With the COVID-19 pandemic going on, there are literally tens of thousands of people who work in live music environments we're talking stagehands, gaffers, front of house, back of house engineers, lighting guys, all that stuff, out of work and they have no possibility of work for a long time to come for obvious reasons. So the industry has started up a charity called Support Act uh, and what they're doing is they're handing out money to um, to these people to try and help them get through. Netflix have thrown a million dollars to the cause and have also thrown an unspecified amount uh, at another thing Support Act's doing in terms of mental health for these people, they can call a special hotline if they're feeling stressed or overwhelmed or whatever. So firstly, I'd like to give a shout out to Netflix for exactly that reason. I think that's great. And secondly, if you can help and if you want to help, uh, you can check out uh, supportact.org.au. Um, I've thrown a bit of money their way because I think it's a great cause and it's obviously a charity that's close to my heart doing what I do for a living. AP, I know a few people in that position. How about you? Uh, yeah, quite a few. And Support Act has been around for quite a few years now and they've done a great job. I know a few people who have uh, used Support Act, mm. uh, some high-profile people 
um, who have used Support Act to get them out of trouble. So it's a great, uh, great organisation, certainly worth uh, chipping in. The Mojo Radio Show. It's probably a bit obvious to play Kenny Rogers the Gambler. And I'm going to try and tie all this together is it there was, do you remember that scene from Oceans 12 or Oceans 13 where George Clooney said to Al Pacino, you should have known better, you shook hands with Sinatra. Do you remember that <laughs> Yeah, yes. One of my great regrets in life is that I missed the opportunity to shake hands with Johnny Cash by maybe 20 or 20 or 30 minutes and never got the opportunity. Oh, no. And that is one of my great regrets in life. So I thought this might be an interesting thing to play the gambler, but play Johnny Cash's version. <laughs> okay. I didn't know he'd done a version, but let's do that. We're out. About 20 years ago, on a train bound for nowhere, I met up with the gambler. We were both too tired to sleep, so we took turns staring through the window at the darkness. Till boredom overtook us And he commenced to speak He said, son, I've made a life Out of reading people's faces And knowing what their cards were By the way they held their eyes And if you don't mind my saying I would say you're out of aces And for one taste of your whiskey I will give you some advice So I handed him my bottle and he drank down my last swallow Then he bummed a cigarette Then he bummed a light The night got deathly quiet And his face lost all expression He said, if you're gonna play the game, boy You better learn to play it right Cause every gambler knows That the secret to survival Is knowing what to throw away Knowing what to keep And every hand's a winner, just like every hand's a loser. And the best that you can hope for is to die in your sleep. You gotta know when to hold them, know when to fold them, know when to walk away, know when to run. You don't ever count your money while you're sitting at the table. There'll be time enough for counting when the dealing is done. You gotta know when to hold them, know when to fold them, know when to walk away, know when to run. You don't ever count your money while you're sitting at the table. There'll be time enough for counting when the dealing is done. And when he finished speaking, he turned back toward the window, put out his cigarette, faded off to sleep. Somewhere in the darkness, the gambler, he broke even. But in his final words, I found an ace that I could keep. You gotta know when to hold them, know when to fold them, know when to walk away, know when to run. You don't ever count your money While you're sitting at the table There'll be time enough for counting When the dealing is done You gotta know when to hold them Know when to fold them Know when to walk away Know when to run You don't ever count your money While you're sitting at the table 
There'll be time enough for counting when the deal is done. You gotta know when to hold them, know when to fold them, know when to walk away, know when to run. You don't ever count your money while you're sitting at the table. There'll be time enough for counting when the deal is done. The Mojo Radio Show is produced and recorded in the basement of Voodoo Sound. For more tips and tools to get your mojo working, check us out on Facebook at The Mojo Radio Show or online at themojoradioshow.com. To help us get better and give more people the opportunity to touch up their mojo, you can now find us on Patreon. Follow the links on the front page of our website and for a coffee or two a month, you'll get regular bonus material and a copy of Explosive Hits 19, the best of the Mojo Radio Show. In the meantime, to polish your next audio production, check out voodoosound.com.au. For more about Gary, see garybirtwhistle.com and to book me, go to andrewpeters.com. Andrew Peters speaking. See you next time.